Well, it is great to see all of you. It is good to be with you. I've been away recently, was at a family wedding, which was, which was so encouraging to see this young couple that is so sold out for Jesus and, and just so excited about what the future is going to look like for them and just been praying them along the way and just had some time with some family, with our kids, and uh, just had a wonderful time. But it's good to be back. I've missed you guys, and I'm very much looking forward to getting into the text that we have in front of us today. My thanks go to Pastor Ben, who's been covering the pulpit and who's just done a fantastic job as uh, he's been filling in and doing his thing and just so appreciative of him as well and appreciative of you. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to those of you on the classic venue and on the Moon Campus. Exciting days for the Moon Campus with a new campus pastor who has just arrived and, and that's exciting. And for those of you online, just a lot of great stuff that is going on. Welcome to all of you. I saw a survey that was written that was comparing a couple of things, and it was asking the question, which would win in a fight? Right? You've probably seen some of these different things. Well, it was comparing a couple of animals. Gave a couple of animals and asked the question, which do you think would win in a fight? And it was a survey that was taken, and I thought, well, we could do that little survey. We could take that right here together ourselves, so I'll let you go ahead and, and vote. So which do you think would win between this pair? All right, how many of you think the elephant would win. You can raise your hand. I was going to have you vote by making the, the noise the animal makes, but I decided against that. So, so anyway, elephant again, how many? How many of you think the rhino would win instead? Really? You are different than all of the people in the survey because they thought it's not just this rhino that looks huge. They thought the elephant was the one that would win. How about between this pair here? You've got the grizzly. How many think the grizzly bear? How many think the leopard? All right, the survey suggested that it was the grizzly bear that would win. How, who do you think would win between this pair? You've got the cat and you've got the pit bull, all right? All right, I'm not going to have you vote on this one. Uh, well, I will. How many of you think the cat? Of course you do. Uh, how many of you think the pit bull is going to win? Of course the pit bull is going to win this one. My question is, how many of you want to see the fight? <laughs> right? Yeah, all right. Yeah. Yeah, let's not go there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, here, here's another one. Who do you think would win between this? An elephant and an unarmed average dude. All right? Who do you think is going to win between this? The survey said that 91% of people said that the elephant was going to win, which is obviously a huge majority. But my question is, why wasn't it 100%? Right? There are 9% of dudes out there saying, yeah, I could take the elephant. No problem. I could take. There were 8% of women who said that they could take the elephant as well. Well, I, I don't think that that's the way that it's going to work out. I think that the elephant most definitely would win this. And the majority of people thought the same thing, just like the majority of people also thought that uh, the guy would lose to a lion and would lose to a kangaroo and would lose to an eagle. In fact, you had to go so far down the list that the first place where it showed up where the majority of people thought the guy would win was when he fought a goose. That, that's the first point that they thought that the, that the guy or that the human, unarmed human, would actually win. Well, the truth is that an unarmed human does, is not going to fare very well out in the wild against, against most animals. They're just not. But what if you gave the man a weapon? What if you gave them a rifle or an elephant gun? 
all of a sudden, the odds change, don't they? They change rather dramatically, where now they're in the person's, the man or woman's, favor in a significant way. So much so, in fact, that that sort of hunting has actually been outlawed in most places. Well, we're in the midst of this study in the book of Romans that we're calling Romans, Grace Changes Everything. Grace Changes Everything. And in this book, the Apostle Paul has been telling us that we're also in a fight. It is a fight with sin. It's a fight with evil. It's a fight with Satan. It's a fight with the, with the forces of evil. We are in this fight, and there's an implicit question that has been coming up all along the way, which is, which one would win in a fight? Would it be sin that would win out, or would it be the man that would win out, or the woman that would win out? Would it be Satan, or would it be the human that would win out in that context, which is a really, really important question. And Paul has been taking up that question, and we've been sort of looking at it all along the way, which would win between those sides. And we've seen that a human that is armed only in his own strength or her own strength is not going to fare very well in that fight. Not well at all. But what if the human is armed? What if the human has the weapons of God in their corner? How are things going to turn out then in that circumstance? Well, that's essentially what Paul is addressing in the passage that we come to look at today. If God were on our side, how is it going to turn out? The place where we are is Romans chapter 8. This is actually our fourth week in Romans chapter 8. I mean, this is such a fantastic chapter. It warranted taking all of this time to make our way through it. Well, we're going to wrap up chapter 8 today, and we're going to move on to chapter 9 next week. But grab your scripture journal, if you got it, or your Bible and the, the notes from the pathway notes. And take a look at what this is. Paul wants his readers to consider the fight if God is on our side. So the way he begins this passage is very interesting. If you look at it, verse 31 invites the readers to consider this question. If God is for us, if God is for us, if he's on our side, if we have that weapon, how does that impact the fight that we are in? And that's where he's going to go in this passage. And as he does so, he actually brings up, he asks this question, if God is for us, and then he asks some questions. But the questions are actually more declarations. And I think you'll see that as we make our way along. But we're going to take a look at each one of these. The first is this, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I'll tell you just right at the outset that the answer is, spoiler alert, no one. No one can be against us. Maybe you can say that with me in response to the question, all right? Can we try this? Just say this along with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Who can be against us? No all right, I love that enthusiasm. Keep that up because this is going to come back a time or two before we're done. Thankfully, Paul doesn't just make his declaration here, drop the mic and walk off. He doesn't just say it and then be done with it. He gives us a little bit of an explanation or some rationale or some reasoning or a little detail, which he actually sets up for us as verse 31 begins. We jumped into the middle. We have to go back to the beginning, which says this, What then shall we say to these things? Which would naturally cause us to ask, because we're all good students of the Bible, well, what should we say to what things? 
What's he talking about? Well, naturally, this is pointing us back to something that has happened or that's been spoken previous to verse 31. Now, there's a bit of debate as to whether or not he's pointing back to a more immediate context, which takes us only back into, let's say, chapter 8 or verses preceding verse 31, which is talking about the Spirit of God and what the Spirit of God provides for us to assist us in the way through our our spiritual lives. Or whether or not he's pointing all the way back to essentially all of the book of Romans up to this point, which tells us about the problem of sin that mankind is in and the solution to that which God brought to us through Jesus going to the cross and his victorious resurrection, whether it deals with all of that. And it's pretty hard to really determine whether or not, there's, like I said, there's a lot of debate on this, whether or not Paul has the whole context in mind or whether he has a more narrow context in mind. But both are essential and both play a role in the confidence that we see Paul having here in the, in the believer's position as he looks forward, as he looks into the future of how the believer is going to navigate their way along. Both of them are essential. So whichever one he means, it really wraps them both together, and we can take confidence in that. And as he does go forward, then Paul gives us some explanation to this confidence he's experiencing. Verse 32, look at it, says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Graciously give us, anybody interested in graciously receiving all things from God? Yeah, right? Aren't all of us? Most definitely, we would all want to have all of the gracious things from God poured into our lap. So much so, in fact, that there are some teachers who know that that's what people want to hear. And so they come out and they make this declaration that that's what God intends for us. Is that you would have everything imaginable, power and possession and money and riches and wealth and fame and all of this all poured into your lap. And so their teaching says that that's what God's intention is for you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that that's what God is going to pour into your lap. It's called the prosperity gospel. A lot of times you can hear this proclaimed on television, that this is what God wants. And if you don't have all of those things, they would suggest that God is not in your corner. And there's a, there's a very precise theological term for that thinking, and it is poppycock is the theological term for that, right? Or nonsense, or hogwash, whatever you want to call it, if you take on that perspective. Being a follower of Jesus is the most fulfilling, the most desirable. It is the most meaningful experience that we can have in this life, but it doesn't mean that we are going to be free from issues, from problems of struggles, We're not going to be free of it. In fact, Paul, not all that long ago, a couple of chapters earlier, talks about original sin. We dug into this for a while, that that particular week where Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they've sinned and their sin has been extended down to mankind to where it touches and influences and affects every one of us. Pastor Ben very helpfully took us last week to look at the fact that creation itself, the Scriptures say, is groaning because of the effects of sin in our world, and it touches every one of us as well. And we're acknowledging that no one can stand against us, but it doesn't mean that there aren't those who don't try to stand against us. It doesn't mean that there aren't people who might even have some success in that in some moments or maybe in some seasons. Anybody here have circumstances where you've got a boss who stands against you? Or an abusive spouse? Or a health issue? Or an addiction? Or unruly kids? 
or circumstances really of any nature in general. Paul's not suggesting that the believer in Jesus will never be under hardship or struggle. It's not what he's saying. What he is suggesting is this, that believers, actually that's not what we're looking for. Believers, let me just tell you, believers will never find themselves below what they can't rise above. Believers will never find themselves below what they can't rise above. Is that because of our hard work? Is that because of our gritty determination? No, it's if God is for us, nobody can be against us. That's what he's pointing out here. And and how is God for us? Verse 32 again, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. If you want to know if God is for you, just look to the cross. Just look to the cross. If you wonder, does God love me? Look to the cross where He sent His own Son to die for your sake. And Paul is saying that if He's going to go so far as to send His own Son to die on our behalf, isn't He going to be willing to do that which doesn't require that much? Wouldn't He be willing to do so? This is called an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the greater thing is true, then you can pretty much assume that the lesser thing is going to be true or that the lesser thing is going to be willing to be done by God. I'm going to illustrate it like this. How many of you are going to either have or are going to be at the beach this year? All right. That's okay. Lots of you are going to be heading off to the beach, and you'll love that. You'll enjoy it. Well, imagine that you've traveled there, and you're unpacking the SUV or the, or the minivan or whatever you drive down there. You're at Myrtle or Hilton Head or somewhere, and you're unpacking it, and you realize that you forgot the beach umbrella. All right? Now, if I go to the beach, that's a problem, <laughs> Because if I go to the beach and I don't have the umbrella, I am going to burn like a marshmallow in an open flame. I mean, it's just not going to go well. I actually seek out the protection from the sun. I seek out the umbrella. I seek out the shade, which is why it's a great reason to live in Pittsburgh. Because you don't have to face that much sun where we are, obviously. So you realize you forgot the umbrella, so you say to your spouse, fine, that's it. I'm done with this. We're packing up. We're going back home. Your spouse is going to say, you're ridiculous. You're nuts. We're not going back home. We took the time off work. We paid for the rental. We paid and drove all the way down here, all that gas money to get down here. We're going to enjoy it. We'll just buy another umbrella. Makes a lot of sense. Why wouldn't you? Because you've done the big thing. Why wouldn't you be willing to just do the smaller thing? Go get another umbrella. Why waste all the rest of what that is? Well, that's essentially what what Paul is talking about here and how it is with God. He's done the biggest thing in providing his son on our behalf. So why wouldn't he be willing to continue to work on our behalf in the things that might be lesser or seem maybe a little bit smaller? They'd be big in our minds but are lesser in terms of what the cost was. Well, of course he's going to do that. Why would he, for instance, rescue you from your sin and not be willing to assist you and help you to get through the circumstances in your marriage? Why would Jesus die on the cross but not be willing to assist you in the relationship that's troubled with your kids or with your boss or whatever other circumstance there might be for you. He would do that, which is why Paul has the confidence that if God is for us, there is nothing that can come against us to defeat us or to defeat God's purposes in our lives. 
He says it can be counted on. So again, I ask you, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. (laughs) Exactly right. As Paul goes on, he's got another question for us, which is really another determined answer that he's figured out, and it is this. Secondly, if God is for us, who can bring a charge against us? If God is for us, who can bring a charge against us? Now, I love this declaration because on the surface, the answer to who can bring a charge against us is a lot of people. A lot of people can bring a charge against us. We can be rightly charged with sin and with selfishness and with hatred and with anger and with bad attitudes. We can be charged with with selfishness. We can be charged with animosity toward God. There are all sorts of things. Even for the one who believes in Jesus, all of those things either are or have been true. But here Paul asks, verse 33, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It sounds like he's making an assumption, well, nobody can bring it which causes us to ask this question, how can that be since we just pointed out that there are all sorts of areas where we're guilty? There are all sorts of areas where we can point out sin and and failure. Well, it comes as we go on, and we see this little phrase in verse 33. It says, it is God who justifies. That's so important. As we've talked about over and over and over and over again in Romans, we've got this idea of justification, which we've defined many, many times as being the fact that we have been declared righteous or we have been declared not guilty. We've seen it many different weeks. Yes, it's true that we can be rightfully accused and there's evidence against us, but those charges won't stick. Those charges can't stick because they've been taken out of the way because we're not seen as guilty any longer. We're seen as not guilty. We are seen as one who has been declared righteous because of the work of Jesus. Why? Verse 32 again says, because he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Jesus took all of those charges on himself and he went to the cross to take it out of the way, to wipe our slate clean. So who can bring a charge against us? People can say all they want, but God looks on us through the blood of Jesus and says, I don't see anything. There's no charge to be brought against us. Nothing that can stick because Jesus has taken it out of the way. So, I ask you, if God is for us, who can bring a charge against us? No one is exactly right. Do you really believe that? I hear you saying it. Do you really believe that? And do you as we continue on? Thirdly, If God is for us, who can condemn us? Paul asks as he really makes a declaration. Now when we think about this question, I think we have to start with who would be inclined to condemn us? Who would be inclined to condemn us? First person that comes to my mind is Satan. John tells us that Satan is the great accuser who would love to lay us out, who would love to condemn us, who would love to get in our face and make things as bad as possible. And to suggest to us that we are not who we believe that we are, even in Jesus. The Apostle Peter says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Paul says elsewhere this, he says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Anything Satan can do to condemn us, you can bet that he is going to try to do that to condemn us. And it's not just Satan that condemns. I can think of some others. Anybody have an enemy in your life? Maybe in your workplace, maybe 
in your neighborhood, somewhere else in your life, who would seek to tear you down? Anybody have a critic that would love to speak against you, to to demean you in the eyes of other people? Or here's one. Do you ever condemn yourself? Do you ever look on yourself and say, there's, there's nothing worthy there? Or look at things that you have done and just believe there's, there's no way that God could forgive that. Sometimes people will say, I know that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Which sounds very humble, it sounds very contrite, but it's actually just arrogant and lousy theology. Because you're saying that you know more than God knows. That your opinion of who you are and what God could do in you matters more than what God says about you. Paul tells us what God's opinion really is in verse 34. If God is for us, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Whenever you're tempted to condemn yourself for something that you've done or, or what anybody has tried to convince you about who you are or how, how you lack value or how you lack worth, just remember that Jesus is in the throne room of heaven and he is speaking directly to the Father, telling you about how you have been bought with a price, how you have been redeemed, how you have been justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what's being spoken about you Is there any testimony that is more powerful than Jesus' own being spoken to the Father? Absolutely not. There is no other testimony that is more significant than that. And we need to get ourselves to the place where we actually believe that. Where we live in such a way where we can rise above the things that otherwise would be anchoring us to to this earth and anchoring us to the things that are of the flesh instead of soaring in the things of the Spirit Paul told us all about this already in Romans chapter 8. It's how he actually started Romans 8, all the way back in verse 1. Do you remember what he said? Read this with me, would you? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is there therefore? There is now no condemnation is what he says. If God is for us, who can condemn us is the question? Thank you. We didn't even get to it. If God is for us, who can condemn us? No one. one. That's right. You're catching on. That's awesome. There's a song that we sing around here that is a beautiful declaration of this very idea that we're talking about, about our position. It says, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You're for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Friends, we need to get ourselves to the place where we believe God when he tells us that we've been forgiven, that we've been chosen, that we have been bought at a price. And because that is true of us, there is therefore now no condemnation. We need to believe what God says about us and live our lives in such a way that demonstrate that. It's not enough to just know somehow cerebrally that there is, there is now no condemnation or that God loves us or that God's forgiven us. 
We need to take that and allow that to inspire how we live and how we move forward and what we believe about ourselves and what we believe is possible that we can do on behalf of Christ. That what we can do through the power of Jesus if God is for us. Because God, if God is for us, no one can stand against us and no one can condemn us. Then there's one more question, which is one more declaration. And it's this, if God is for us, who can separate us? Who can separate us? There's no doubt that circumstances can get difficult in this life. Paul himself experienced more pain and problem than most of us are ever going to go through in a lifetime. So it's interesting to see what he has to ask. In verse 35, he writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? There might be something in that list that sounds a little bit familiar to you, something that perhaps you've experienced. You might have something else that you would add to it that feels maybe a little bit more personal to you. His question, though, isn't whether or not those things are real. They are. Those things come around. But his real question is, do any of them suggest or demonstrate that God has forgotten us or is ignoring us or that has separated us from the love of Christ? that we're off somehow on our own island if these sorts of things are transpiring in our life. That's really what he's asking. Then without giving the answer, he has more fuel to the fire in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is a quote Paul is borrowing from Psalm 44, where the psalmist is crying out on behalf of the people who feel that they are suffering when they're trying to be faithful, yet there are these problems that are coming against us. And Paul says, that sounds familiar. Let me just borrow that from Psalm 44, and let me just drop it in here in Romans 8, which is what he has done. They're wondering if God was paying attention. So do those things mean that we have been separated from the love of God? Finally, after Paul just raises it and raises it and raises it and causes us to think, yeah, I can think of things going on in my life too. Has God separated his love from me? Finally, he answers it emphatically, verse 37. He says, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice, he doesn't say, tell you what, you're going to squeak by. Everything's going to be okay. You'll, you'll, you'll get through it. It's not what he says. He says, you're a conqueror. You're victorious over these things in your life through Christ. In fact, he says more than that. He says, you are more than conquerors. To be more than a conqueror would suggest that you don't just win over the enemy, but God takes that which was brought against you for evil and he turns it to good. That's what he's talking about. That's the power of what is going on here. To be more than a conqueror suggests that you don't just escape the clutches of the enemy and they somehow slink home, but that you subjugate that enemy and now you have the upper hand against him, against whatever that evil is. Should you ever do battle again, you can remember that that's the position that you have in Jesus Christ. Never will that enemy threaten to separate you from the love of Christ. That's our reality if God is for us. If he's a weapon that we have in our corner, and every believer in Jesus does. And then, as if that wasn't enough, Paul wraps up this chapter with some of the most encouraging and inspiring words that you find in all of the Bible. Starts off in verse 38. He says, For I am sure, not I think, not I'm pretty sure, not I hope. He says, 
For I am sure, I am confident that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Needed a bigger amen than that. Think of all of what that means. There's so many uncertainties in our world today. My guess is that you read the news, you listen to the news, and you wonder, when is this going to stop? How long is this going to continue? This is so horrible, and then I hear about something else, and then something else stacks on top of that, and something else, and it's like, where is this going? And when is it going to stop? I wonder that. The question is, I don't know. You don't know. We can't know. Here's the thing I do know. Distress, danger, discouragement, division, it's going to continue. We're not going to be done with that tomorrow unless Jesus comes back. There's not going to be something that's handed down from some lawmaker that changes all of that, and it's fine now. It's going to continue on. If it's not in one realm, it's going to be in some other realm that's going to touch us just as significantly. But even in the face of that reality, we need not fear. We need not worry that we'll be overcome or separated from the love of Christ because He just said there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. He's not saying, okay, fine, you're going to just be beaten up and beaten up and it's going to be awful and bloody and horrible, but at least Jesus will love you. That's not what he's saying. See, the love of Jesus, what this is talking about is that he is acting, pouring out, actively pouring out his favor and his blessing. He is shaping us, even in hardship, so that we would grow stronger, that we would grow more and more conformed to the image of who Jesus is. And he's giving us a platform from which to help fulfill that greatest purpose, which is the salvation of souls. See, oftentimes we think that the highest good, at least we live in such a way that suggests that we believe the highest good, is living at ease. Or finding some comfort. Or putting ourselves in a place where I don't have to think about all that much. I can kind of isolate myself. I can live my own life. I can do my own thing. But that's not my call. And that's not your call either. Your call is to respond to the death and resurrection of Jesus, to live under the power of the gospel, and to fulfill His purpose for you, which is to make much of Him. That's what it's about. That's why we're here. And here's the thing. Everything that is happening in our world today is a platform from which you can do that. It's a platform that sets you up to be able to live out the purposes of God. Now, He didn't desire all of those things to happen, but here they are. And every one of them is an opportunity for us to live out our purpose. But I'm afraid too often what we do is we just sort of back off and it's like, I don't understand. Why is this going on? I sure hope it stops. We say to one another, when's it ever going to stop? When really what has just happened is that there's been another door that's opened that has given us the opportunity to walk through and make much of Jesus. And to help people understand what is the nature of sin? How does that influence our world? And is there ever going to be a solution over it? 
And the answer is absolutely there is. And you know what the answer is. And every time one of those circumstances happens, as horrible as they are, it's another platform from which you can live out your purpose. But it's not the perspective we have or oftentimes take on. But I want to challenge you to do so because when we will, guess what? Then things are going to start to work out for good. Sound familiar? Romans 8. More of this chapter. So, my friends, help me out. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against us? Who can condemn us? Who can separate us? That is exactly right. You are 100% correct. Do you believe it? The only demonstration that you believe it is if you live it. Live in such a way that demonstrates that you've risen above, that you believe that there is no separation from the love of Jesus. He's given you a purpose and a call, and we can live it out. If God is for us, if we have that weapon, well, guess what? Christ is for us. So let us go, and let us live as people who are more than conquerors through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Jesus. Thank you for the fact that we have weapons available to us. If God is for us, if you are for us, we've declared again and again as Paul declares, you are for us. You are in our corner. You are working on our behalf. You are a weapon that is at our disposal that has already been poured out for all who are believers in Jesus. If you're for us, who can stand against us? No one. No power, no authority that can overcome. Lord, I pray that this would not just be some theological truth, that this would not just be a Bible verse, but that it would be a reality in how it influences the way that we live. Lord, in this moment, I just pray that we collectively would be evaluating what is it that you're calling us to do? How is it that I should, should move forward given these truths that are mine, these things that are true about me? And Lord, we thank you today for the things you tell us that are indeed true about us. We are who you say we are. We are who you say we are. We've been chosen, not forsaken. We've been called. We've been equipped. We've been empowered. We've been drawn into fellowship with the Lord of all life. Lord, we celebrate that fact. For anyone who is here, friend, if you have yet to make that decision in your heart and life, to confess Jesus as your Lord, to submit your life, to surrender to him and live for his purposes, which as we've seen brings us the greatest blessing imaginable in life, far beyond what we have been able to achieve in trying to go our own way. Then in this moment, you confess your sin to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. 
Tell him that from this moment forward, you're surrendering your life to his and you're making him Lord of your life. Father, we thank you for the things that are true about us, that you have made true, not because of our power, not because of what we have done, but rather for what has been done for us through Jesus, through the gospel. We rest in that. We rejoice in that. We celebrate that as ones who are more than conquerors. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.